Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegemelch. Thanks for joining us for this very special edition of Disaster Politics Podcast. Folks may remember a ways back on episode five of the podcast when we interviewed Anthony Lowenstein. It was on our Going Global episode. And Anthony's a freelance journalist and author of a book called Disaster Capitalism and was working on a film of the same name. Well, the film finally came out. Turns out that the film's director, Thor Neuritter, I hope I said his name right, is based at the Columbia Journalism School. The center that I work at, the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at the Earth Institute, is also based at Columbia University. So we got together and we thought maybe we'd join forces on this uh, this U.S. premiere and, in fact, the first premiere north of the equator of the film. So we held a screening at the journalism school, and then afterwards we had a panel discussion with experts um, from across the field of disasters, some with more domestic experience, some more international experience. And we decided to, you know, use the film as a platform for talking about these issues of disaster capitalism. What are the causes? What are some ways to work around it? And what does the future hold for the way that philanthropies and corporations and governments look to fund disaster response and disaster recovery? So we'll go into it, and you'll hear everybody on the panel introduced, except the first person you'll hear talking is the panel moderator, Jonathan Surrey, from my center, Columbia University's National Center for Disaster Preparedness, where he's a project director for field operations and communications. And Thor, who is briefly introduced, uh, actually had introduced himself at the very beginning uh, prior to the screening of the film, which preceded the panel discussion. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry about it. Um, you should see it the first chance that you get. Check out the website, disastercapitalismfilm.com. Gives an overview of where some screenings are that may be near you. There's a trailer for the film, and I think if you watch that, you'll get a strong sense of what the film is about and what are the themes that we're talking about on this panel. So I think you'll be able to follow along with the podcast here today. But also, if you're interested in hosting a screening or learning more about the film and the process of developing it and the people behind it, also check out that website, disastercapitalismfilm.com, to learn more about that to find a screening near you, and request a screening if you think that that's something that's of interest in your area. As always, thanks for coming to the podcast, and let's check out the panel, and we'll see you on the other side. I think we're going to, uh, we'll just introduce everybody real quick. Um, starting at the end, uh, we've got Sarah Baker, uh, who's a programs manager at Healthcare Ready. Um, she oversees the organization's preparedness and resilience programming, um, as well as uh, their policy research and analysis, um, and has been has experienced a very active hurricane season in 2017. We'll hear a little bit more about that. Uh, we got uh, Jeff Schlegemelch, uh, who's the deputy director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness, um, and uh, I, we work very closely together. He is my boss, in full disclosure, so I'll, I'll give you some hard questions. Um, his areas of expertise include uh, public health preparedness, community resilience, um, and integration of public and private sectors. Um, if we do not hear a Simpsons quote from Jeff today, it has not been a good evening. 
<laughs> We've got Turner Ba. Uh, Turner is the co-founder uh, and executive director of Purposeful Productions, his latest venture. Um, Turner and I uh, work closely together on a number of initiatives uh, in Sierra Leone to support adolescent girl programming. And Turner has worked for the Population Council, um, Global Education First Initiative, the co-founder of A World at School, has worked at the Nike Foundation, Catholic Relief Services, and UNFPA. Thank you, all. And of course, we all know Thor. I think throughout today, we're going to hit on a few different uh, topics, including disaster philanthropy, uh, fundraising, funding models, innovative funding models. Um, hopefully, we'll explore um, some individual giving recommendations, explore the good, the bad, and ugly of public-private partnerships, and spend a little bit of time talking about disaster response and recovery frameworks and experiences from a few different recent events. Thor, when we spoke originally, I think you said something that uh, that really hit a point home was that you could throw a dart anywhere on a on a globe, and you would hit places which are experiencing these very examples of these issues. And we are we are ex in an era of extreme events where we are seeing extremes uh, on a on a daily basis, and our current resources are being taxed beyond their capabilities. And many of the current policies, as Anthony pointed out. Um, are rolling back and deregulating a lot of these protections in place. And we're going to see history repeating itself and, in fact, getting worse. Yeah, no doubt. Um, narrowing down on the three countries that we picked was it, it happened because they were the, the countries that we were focusing on, I think, individually. Uh, we met through Afghanistan in a way. Um, he was coming to... Um, the United States before going to Haiti right after we had met. So we're like, let's go to Haiti together. Like, that makes sense. The earthquake was just a few years prior. And then uh, I didn't know anything about Bougainville. Um, and that just, when we started talking about it, it seemed like those three countries worked together. But you could swap out Afghanistan for the D D uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, you could look at war-torn countries that were caused by mining, um, you know, in other parts of the globe. And you know, when it comes to natural disasters, I mean, we could have gone to New Orleans instead of Haiti. You know, with looking at um, Earth with a uh, with Katrina, and I mean, that's where Naomi Klein and the whole phrase of disaster capitalism comes from. It comes from her and her work of looking at post-Katrina New Orleans uh, for everyone, anyone who doesn't know. So yeah, we could have threw a dart. I mean, if it would have landed in England or Sweden, maybe that we would have had less of a case of finding something there that's big and impactful. But in a lot of these countries around the world that are either developing or are suffering from some sort of disaster, um, it seems the money gets lost somehow in the mix, whether it's because of security, like in Afghanistan, like people can't, you know, that work for the United States government or for the UN, like they can't leave their compounds. So how can you actually help people if you can't talk to people? Um, that's a question we don't get into in this cut of the film, but it's something that we looked into. Absolutely, and I think uh, uh, Anthony points out in his interview with Jeff, um, that both his and Naomi's thesis is people making money through misery. Um, Turner, could you uh, set up the stage a little bit for some of the experiences uh, in the, with the Blood Diamond conflict in Sierra Leone and take us on a little bit of a journey because I think there's a, a thread that you could weave through the Ebola crisis, 
um, and then leading up through uh, some of the current issues with uh, that we experienced with the flood, the Freetown flooding and the Mile 6 community, um, and even some of the rebuilding and reconstruction issues there. Yeah, thank you so much, first of all, for having me, and congratulations. It's a really terrific film. I was, uh, I have to say, whenever um, um, I encounter works like this, I'm always a little bit critical in the beginning, because I'm from Sierra Leone. I've been a displaced and a refugee, and sometimes what you find is there's also, and this is unspoken, an exploitation of our stories as well, right? And uh, a certain reductionist perspective in terms of who we are and how uh, this story is told. And as uh, Jonathan said, I've uh, been working in the aid sector myself for um, about 11 years now. I was in Haiti myself right after the earthquake. And I, um, you know, I've been to Lebanon. I've worked in uh, northern Uganda, um, in Ethiopia. And so that is part, part of the reason why I was so moved by this work, because I think it captures it. And I like the fact that you're telling it through really ordinary human lens in terms of what impact is on people's lives. And I think that's really uh, one of the things that I find so powerful. I mean, for those of you, you know, uh, when I give talks, other times I ingest, I introduce myself as, uh, well, I'm from Sierra Leone, but no, I don't have blood diamonds. And no, I was not a child soldier because, uh, you know, wherever I am in the world and even in the most extreme places, I was just in Myanmar and uh, in a room of school kids. And I ask, what do you know about Sierra Leone? And believe it or not, somebody knows about blood diamonds because that's become the basically summary representation of my country um for good reason because for for 11 years my own childhood was dominated by you know an industry that the the again the the, the thing for me that another thing that stands out here is that it's not accidents right there's a combination of not just disaster capitalism but racism and, uh, you know, I think for me, when I was watching that, it really stood out for me as well. And also the fact that this is, the in, it's so intentional that the structure is designed to benefit from misery and to perpetuate that misery. The war in Sierra Leone and Liberia um, were, you know, it went on forever and they said it was endless conflict, endless conflict. But as soon as they put in place the Kimberley process, which basically meant that they could control the sale of diamonds from conflict areas and you had to register them before they were sold in the markets in Belgium, uh, 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 primarily in other places in Europe, the war ended. Everybody was forced to go to the uh, peace talks and basically the you know we, we were able. But I think the bigger point is the at, at, at some point, Sierra Leone, of only 4 million people had the largest UN peacekeeping mission in the world. We had over 18,000 peacekeepers in Sierra Leone. Um, you can imagine what that does for the economy and, and, and everything. I mean, prices and everything goes up and stuff. But the whole point was about rebuilding our country. It was about helping to rebuild that country. But we had our first shock after the war. It was Ebola. And you all know how that ended. It, thousands of people died because the most basic, simple human infrastructure that could have and should have been built was not. In fact, it became an opportunity for more of what we're talking about here as well, more of that extraction and more of that exploitation. I could go on, but yeah. You specifically talk about um, the Mile 6 community and um, some of the promises that were made to rebuild homes and just set the stage for that specific flood event. Yeah, um, 
I'm, I'm happy you asked about mile six because Jonathan and I have worked on a, on a project for a community in Sierra Leone. So uh, after Ebola, we also had some major floods in the country and uh, thousands of people were, were displaced and who have been living in slum areas. In again, the other, the other theme that comes out of this is at the end of the day, it's the poorest people that suffer the most, right? It's always kind of comes back to the people that, you know, that the poorest people, they seem to be at the receiving end of all of this. And government, I was actually, I happened to have had been at the stadium on the day that they told the last people to step outside of the stadium because they've been trying to get them out because apparently they had a, a festival to organize in the stadium. So people would be housed there, uh, they were sleeping there, and they basically told everybody to come outside, they were going to give them um, tickets to get new houses in this new community. And I was there when families came out and then they shut the door in front of them. And you could see families crying, they had left their kids inside, they were trying to get kids and, and threw them outside. But the promise was they were going to take everybody to a new community. And this new community was uh, just it was six miles outside of the city. But it was this really bland piece of land that is not close to anything. Like nothing is there. They had no schools, but they had made these big promises. And they went and built two houses that were supposed to be the model houses for what this community was going to look like. And then they built a lot of shacks and they threw thousands of families into these shacks, overlooking these two big houses that they had built that were the model, but that nobody was in. I mean, the, the, the cruelty of the irony, you know, it's hard to, for that to get lost on, on anyone. So they built, so people were living in this place. And of course, the whole point of that was to take these people away from the city so they can be invisible, right? And that's another theme I think I, I, I find from watching this, so that they can be invisible and, 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 and they can no longer uh, be the eyesore that they were when they were in the national stadium. Um, some of you might have heard as well that we recently had a massive mudslide in Sierra Leone that killed 1,000 people overnight. The sad cruelty of all of this is Jonathan and I have been uh, in a project we've been working with at one of only few organizations that have continued to work in mile six. But right after the mudslide happened and hundreds and thousands of people were displaced again, the government announced, lo and behold, or everybody that was displaced, they have this beautiful community, mile six. They were gonna send these same people back to that community. And, and when I last visited mile six, before the mudslide, the one well that had been built was not working. There's widespread cases, and we work on girls mostly, widespread cases of um, abuse, uh, girls being raped, and a lot of people had left and moved back into the slums. And the irony is that most of these people and their families were actually also the victims of the mudslide. That's another thing. It's kind of a, the, the revolving part, I think, you try to pull out as well um, in, the, in the film. But yeah, I think Mile 6 is a small community. Um, I was just there with uh, with a mutual friend of, of Jonathan and I, and, and, and she was saying to me, she's also a worker, knows all the rules, you're not supposed to give money, you're not supposed to do anything directly. She was like, Mile 6 is one of those places that just makes you very sad, makes you want to throw away all the principles that you've learned all your lives because you see the small place and think, I don't understand why we can't get it right. It's not that big, you know, it's like so small. You could actually do this if you did care. But on the day we were there, there was a Coke uh, corporation that was there, and they were talking to people about trying to build something for them. And 
God knows how that's going to end as well. Uh, Jeff, can we talk about mission creep? Sure. Great. Um, Reminds me of the Simpsons episode. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, some of these, Turner, as you were speaking about um, some of these housing issues and and moving people out of sight, it, it just reminds me so much of New Orleans and moving the poorest of the poor and the most disenfranchised and the most vulnerable out of the community. Um, and even how some of the programs um, that were intended to allow people to rebuild homes were really only for homeowners and people who did not own homes were excluded from that. And, and that's, you know, we could spend all night talking about that. But thinking about housing and and how the Red Cross uh, ended up raising uh, and this is some great work by um, Justin Elliott and Laura Sullivan, raised over $500 billion um, in response to the Haiti earthquake. And we know domestically the Red Cross is really good at sheltering. There's a few things that they're really, really good at. Um, but here they were, ended up uh, essentially offering to rebuild, and, or sorry, build homes for 133,000 people. And they ended up building six homes. That, to me, seems like mission creep, and I, I think we, we see that as well in public-private partnerships where people end up with huge, huge contracts. We saw that was the Halliburton and with a number of different churches um, uh, and other uh, private corporations during Katrina, they end up with contracts that they have no business holding, that they are not prepared for. Where is the structure for accountability to prevent large sums of money ending up in the hands of, of people like that? Yeah, you know, I, I began to understand the disaster response world a lot more when um, a number of years ago I was uh, sort of at a crossroads. I was working in a disaster center at another location and, and to either go after my PhD and do more research or go after my MBA and be more on the management side. So I said, I don't want to be in academia. So I got my MBA and then went to work at Columbia. But the <laughs> so, um, but, but I guess what I mean by that is I really got to understand business structures and business models and how these business models are set up whether and you can call it a nonprofit but it still lives and dies based on the money that comes through and so I think along those lines you have these large nonprofits and we see this domestically as well as internationally that are very good at fundraising and what happens is they've gotten to a point where they're of a size where they've reached sort of critical capacity where they've now had to they're so big they have a lot of pressure to bring money in to sort of keep that structure going forward. And you start to see the pressure for fundraising start to overtake the focus on the mission. And I think that that's where you see, one, why are they even bidding on these contracts? Because there's money to be made. And again, they're not paying it out to shareholders. They're funding an organization that's maybe gotten too large to sustain itself. And so so they start taking on areas of the mission that they're not qualified for. They start looking at where are other ways where they can help, all with the best of intentions, but all with sort of perpetuating an organization that is maybe too large for itself. Um, And you'll see this in in disasters where they get a sudden influx of money and then they grow in size and then the money goes away and then they say, what do we do? Do we shrink or do we keep sort of bringing in money? So I think you see a lot of mission creep with that. I also think you see a lot of, um, uh, what's the word? Organizations sort of decide that they know what's best for an organization because they've seen it all. 
And so they, you know, whether they're in country, whether they're in Texas and in, in Hurricane Harvey or in Puerto Rico and the recovery there, where, you know, they can sort of sit in a conference room and with their collective experience decide what the locals really need without ever actually involving them in that process. And the funding model makes it unnecessary for them to engage in that process. So I think one of the key things is that, you know, I'm not trying to say that these aid organizations are inherently evil. I mean, I think it's the opposite. I think they have incredibly good intentions that are very poorly executed because it's being funded under a business model that does not hold them accountable for that. You've done good work in the past, so why not give you a bunch of money to do good work in the future? Um, you know, you, you've, you're really good at sheltering people. Housing is kind of the same thing, right? Well, no, it's incredibly different. And uh, so you sort of see that from the hard way. But I think it, it comes down to a point, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, is that um, you know, if you're not engaging the local communities, um, and it's really it's not revolutionary. Engage people on the ground in the discussion about what you're going to do with them. Nobody does it. Nobody puts that into their funding model, because when they're bidding on a project, they're looking for the funding to keep their organization alive so that they can keep doing good work. And it creates a self-perpetuating cycle of funding the organization to do good work on behalf of people who aren't in the room. And so um, I guess in terms of countering that, it's really incumbent upon the donors, upon the people giving the money, to insist on this, because without that, these organizations can't do the work that they're doing. So that just reminded me. Uh, so in in Haiti, we have Timothy Schwartz, who's you know the white guy. Um, he's uh, we, we called him Kurtz for a while in a very enduring way because he he really embraced. He went down as an anthropologist, uh, but he really embraced. He, like he's Haitian um, in a way, um, but he had done a lot of contracting work with the U.S. State Department. Uh, and U.S. U.S. aid, um, and he he told the story which didn't make it in the cut, but it goes along like they're in a room and there's 50 people there having a meeting, and 45 of them are from the United States and Caucasian, uh, and there's five Haitians in the room, and they're all pushed back against the wall, and we're not given a chance to speak one time, and I think that's probably the biggest aha moment that that he had, because um, he has like. When I was introduced to him in, um, by uh, another journalist who was like, you have to talk to this guy, Tim Schwartz. Like, there is no sacred cow that he will not slaughter. So, um, yeah, I just, w you know, when you're talking about giving people a voice and bringing them to the table, like, um, I just wanted to share that. Like, he, he had a lot of powerful stuff to say. I, I loved his quote, actually, about how the U.S. State Department is designed to perpetuate U.S. business interests. And I think that's really important, is that actually the for-profit sector is much more transparent in their motivations. It's much clearer. They have shareholders that they answer to, and they exist to create shareholder value. There's no bullshit there. Now, how they promote that and market it and sell it and operate in foreign countries, it varies based on the organization. But there's no, uh, you know, it's very clear. And I liked how he sort of demystified that, you know, look, the State Department is there to look out for the United States. And U.S. aid is a means to an end for U.S. interests. And I think that that's the other thing is everybody walks into a disaster scenario with a set of interests, with an agenda of what they're looking to achieve. And it's important to understand that and to understand, now that being said, the private sector and the aid industry can bring things to scale that the nonprofit sector can't do. There's a place for it, but it has to be leveraged appropriately and not as a, a sort of broad sweeping solution because ultimately there are going to be areas where their agenda comes into conflict with the local agenda. So it's up to donors to make better choices to, to help influence funding um, and where, where and who gets the money. But what about 
in these big contracting mechanisms at the federal level um, and beyond the federal level even, um, that seems like a little bit of a, a very complicated situation where people are first in line because of the system and the way it's been set up. Yeah, so that's, I mean, contracting vehicles and even donation vehicles. So after a disaster, you know, and again, I, I think the Red Cross is an incredibly important organization that does really good work, but also has a lot of issues and a lot of, particularly at sort of the, the corporate office level. And why is it that they always get the most donations? Because they have that number on all the telethons. They're ramped up and ready to go to blast out their fundraising model. Similarly, with federal contract vehicles, I did a lot of work with this in my prior position, it takes a lot of work and effort and money to get on one of these contract vehicles. And then when the federal government needs to push money out quickly, you saw the gentleman from the um, uh, Inspector General's office for Afghanistan talking about this. It's all about getting the money out there. Everybody wants to see the money in the field and spent very quickly. Um, and so if you have one of these contract vehicles, it doesn't need to go out to bid, it doesn't need to go out to normal procurement rules, but it can be fast-tracked to these organizations that are already geared up for it. So again, you have this system that sort of perpetuates uh, large organizations with very robust and sophisticated either sales or fundraising, depending on which side of the profit line they've uh, identified for tax purposes, um, that facilitates bringing in the funding very quickly to do that. Um, and maybe a little later I can talk about some of our work in Texas where we went down there after the fact and actually identified a group that didn't even have a 501c3 status, um, but had opened up, was locally running, had, was uh, sheltering a lot of people who had nowhere else to go, providing services that no one else had, um, and actually were a much better vehicle for meeting the needs of the people in the community. And so we worked with them to actually get them a 501c3 status and sort of get some seed funding in there to help them get going because they were actually serving the needs of the community when there were elements of other charities that were um, invited to leave by the local government because they were there and nobody really knew what they were doing. Uh, Sarah, can you help me uh, with a problem? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, thinking about Puerto Rico, and uh, I've been reading up on this a little bit, and, and the pharmaceutical interests for U.S. corporations in Puerto Rico. It's a $15 billion industry, um, a quarter of all pharmaceutical drugs, and this is a quote from Nicolette, a quarter... Uh, That's my boss. <laughs> yeah, a quarter of all pharmaceutical drugs are exported from the U.S. or made in Puerto Rico. It's a huge industry. And there was concern, and there was a shortage of IV bags and other drugs, and a concern that there would be greater shortages. But looking back, in 2006, a lot of the tax incentives were actually removed in Puerto Rico, and a lot of big pharma companies started pulling out and leaving. Uh, and my question is around community recovery. And if you have now no tax incentive, you have disrupted infrastructure, what, what interest does big pharma have in helping a community recover? And do they care if their community recovers with over 20,000 skilled workers that work in these uh, factories? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so Healthcare Ready, we're a nonprofit that helps facilitate coordination between the public and private sectors during disasters. And we were talking about Katrina earlier. Our organization was actually founded as a result of Katrina. Um, the coordination between specifically the pharmaceutical supply chain and the public sector um, was not kind of where it needed to be. And so um, a working group formed that became a coalition that became a 501c that became us, a nonprofit. Um, and 11 years later, there's still work to be done in coordinating between the public and private sector. Um, so, you know, in terms of the pharmaceutical industry and having, you know, 
what you know what is their stake in the island still um you know we saw during our activation we were activated for you know over 60 days during the hurricane season last year um their their first concern is their workers and their families and making sure that they had what they needed not just to get back to work but that that they had you know literally what they need to be comfortable in their homes or to have electricity to have food to have water um and so they have they have been there so long they've developed ties to the community now um and you know the healthcare demand is only growing, not just in the U.S., but across um, across the world. So I think, you know, even if they're moving out of Puerto Rico, they'll they'll still be there for a while too. They've developed ties. They have um, workers there, and they're still invested in, in their well-being. Also, the the first thing we heard from the pharmaceutical companies when we were working with them was, you know, we need to focus on our workers first, and then you know. That's the key to restoring the supply chain, really, is making sure our workers and our distribution centers and our manufacturing facilities have what they need and that they're taken care of. You don't think there's a risk of, of them pulling out entirely now? I mean, I'm sure there could be. Um, I'll be completely honest. We're a nonprofit that works with them, um, so I'm not, I don't know if I feel empowered or, you know, even comfortable to say what their motivations would be, but um, I think, you know, it, it's a valid concern, certainly. Um, watching watching the clips on Haiti, um, you know, I, I thought was resonated particularly strongly because um, we don't want to see history repeat itself in a way um, in Puerto Rico. Not that there's the same situations, but there's certainly similarities and ties there between, um, you know, appropriately and you know proactively engaging the community in recovery efforts and you know knowing what they need and why they need it and what they what they don't want and what they don't need either right. Turner I'll direct this at you but open it up to everybody and feel free to, to jump in as you feel free there's a lot of really well-intentioned individuals and well-meaning individuals who get into the aid industry um, and on the response recovery development side many of whom are probably in this room or have made their way through a Columbia school. Uh, but where organizationally, institutionally, does this system break down and these monetary incentives and, and political incentives um, start overtaking that kind of altruistic interest in doing good and contributing to society? That's the easiest question, right? Well, look, I mean, I think that's, I will say at the beginning is that the 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 structure doesn't, the entire system doesn't think about the recipients of this aid, first of all, as human beings. I think it's the dehumanization of people. I think that's where it starts. And I think it comes back to the point you were making about it should be common sense. If you're going to design for the people in mile six, you want to engage the people in mile six. You want to be able to have a conversation. But... When emergencies happen, even the best intentioned folks just tend to, you know, to think about, and that's why, for example, girls will always be the last kind of group that are considered, that's where reproductive health is kind of an afterthought. That's why when you talk about education, and part of my work has been on advocating for education, people think, how dare you talk about education? People are dying. We just want to give them food and water, right? Because people reduce um, victims of disaster to their uh, most desperate needs. Their humanity is, is, is reduced to their most desperate needs. So if I, if I sit down and think back at what I will see as the denominator there in terms of what 
leads to all of this breakdown is that. And then, of course, there are a lot of number of structural issues. Uh, one of them is that we're very reactive. So you look at a country like Sierra Leone, you could, I sit here and I can tell you now that next year there's going to be a disaster of some sort. But we don't really have uh, any structure that really thinks about and engages the people to think about this in the kind of way I know that your work does and, and, and you try to think about, but think about people and create structures that can respond to these things in a, in a humane way and can engage people over time. So what happens is that, like Ebola, people, you could see that it was coming, it started in Guinea, and <laughs> you could see that this is gonna come, but from our governments to the international community, everybody just sit there and wait. And then by the time they want to actually respond, the situation is so huge, then they have to turn to Red Cross. Then they have to turn to the big players because they just have to get the money out now and show that they're doing something. So I think it's it's really, at least in my view, it's a combination of those factors. Yeah, and I was actually, um, I think another important consideration is, you know, kind of the news cycle today and the, the attention span of the public. Um, and, and, you know, kind of right after an event, we see everyone's following coverage of it, you know, 24-7 seeing, um, you know, we like those human interest stories, what's happening to people. Um, but, you know, especially um, in today's kind of news cycle, there's another story very shortly, um, and it falls off the radar of the public. And so, but the recovery efforts and the relief doesn't, like the, the need is still there. Um, so I think, you know, in today's news cycle, it can fall off quickly, which it, it allows in a sense for, you know, that breakdown to happen um, behind closed doors. And, you know, there's not there's not always an attention um, to, you know, take a take a closer look until we have documentaries like this that try and call more attention to it. Um, and then kind of related to that, we see also, you know, there's disaster capitalism, but disaster fatigue, too. We saw this a lot um, by the time Hurricane Maria came around. There was um, disaster fatigue and donor fatigue, too. Um, people, you know, didn't have anything left to give or they were, you know, they were kind of exhausted by disasters. And, you know, so I think that kind of donor fatigue is something that could compound disaster capitalism as we see it too. And thinking of ways to mitigate against that, I think will be important. And, and I'll add too, I think we also, we, we kind of oversimplify the actors in the situation as well too. We, we sort of look at um, uh, sort of one group of actors as if they were one coherent rational actor. Uh, when in fact it's actually many different actors with competing interests everywhere from, we do a lot of preparedness work with the healthcare system in the United States. When we draw a nice oval on the flowchart that says healthcare system here, it makes sense. But the reality is, is that these are independent, competing private sector corporations that are competing with each other across a whole continuum of care. Um, and I think when we look at the response to disasters as well, too, we sort of look at the aid community when it's really a number of independent actors. Um, that are all engaging in the situation. When we look at that too, I think back to um, nobody owns the big picture. Even though we look at the big picture and we criticize the big picture, everybody owns part of it. Nobody owns all of it. And so it's very easy to say, you know, each person in the video saying, you know, well, here's what we have control over, but the problem's over here, something that I don't have control over. Um, and, and, you know, that's a pattern that you see continue on. Um, and I'm thinking back to on the, the podcast and the interview with uh, Anthony, he brought up a saying that's I find uh, much truth in when I'm trying to understand what's going on in the situation. And he says that a lot of these organizations, they're designed to manage the crisis, 
not to resolve the crisis. Let's shelter people. Let's not get them out of shelters. And, and again, even in the video here, and again, not a bad intention person, but from the UN saying, well, how long will people stay here? Well, that's up to the individual, and that's up to the government. They're just here to provide shelter. Um, I like the guy in Haiti from talking about, well, aid just perpetuates aid. We need to get, uh, you know, we need to get funding in there. And of course, he worked for Bridge Capital, you know, <laughs> you know. And so it's you get, you know, everybody bringing their perspective and their opinion on what works best. But without, I mean, who is there to sort of referee all of these things? Um, ideally, it's the local government, but that local government has to be empowered to actually provide that level of leadership. Yes, like who? <laughs> there's a lot of challenges with making an independent documentary, especially something where you have to go to three very far-off locations and your partner being on the other side of the planet. That being said, um, one of the challenges, I think, was sort of how do we tell this, how do we get into this topic without attacking individuals? I would say the closest we got to attacking individuals were was the, the sec then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton um, and, and U.S. aid in their in their actions in Haiti but I, I looked at that as even they were those two like that individual in that organization they were more of they were just the target at that time for a broader thing a bigger thing which you know hate dropping um, sort of these uh, these terms these wonky terms but it's like neoliberalism it's like the neoliberal idea taking over the aid industry. Um, and we had some people in Haiti talking about that as well. Just, you know, you cut it down to 52 minutes, a lot gets lost. But that's like a really big idea to wrap your head around. Um, and, and we never wanted to say that aid is bad, it needs to stop, it needs to go away. But we wanted to hopefully bring people together to talk about it and, and to talk about like what is neoliberal ideology and does it have a place in the world of aid? I mean, it's there. Um, and also, you know, we didn't want to ever aid someone saying like, ah, oh, see these people, they, they see that aid is no good, so we need to cut it all out. But we kind of see, well, one of the fears I have is what we see, what I think is weaponizing aid right now with the current administration and Nikki Haley and the, at the UN. And, you know, America first, uh, the reaction in Puerto Rico as opposed to Houston is vastly different. Um, and there's definitely, I shouldn't say definitely, there's an apparent racial motive behind that, I would say, uh, despite the, the um, pharmaceutical interests that, that are very strong in in Puerto Rico. So I just wanted to jump in. I don't know. That was more of a statement than answering a question. <laughs> no, no, thank you. Thinking about disruptive processes and the concept of creative destruction, after the 1995 Kobe earthquake, there was a moratorium on building for months. No one was allowed to build anything. Um, there was no rebuilding. There was only building from the ground up. Um, it allowed them to institute um, proper and newer building codes. Um, it reduce the amount of predatory action um, and activities from outside contractors coming in. But that's a, a model that we, we rarely see, you know, thinking even just uh, through some of our trips down to Texas, you know, the first thing we do after disaster, a large natural disaster, is we remove the debris. That's the first step of recovery. We think we're, we think we're starting recovery when the debris is gone, but we know 
from a social science perspective that it's far more complex than that. What are some of the challenges of, of instituting those kinds of disruptive and interruptive um, thoughtful processes uh, in disaster recovery? I think part of what's challenging, um, of the many challenges in disaster recovery, is that you know it's we can't model that kind of innovation beforehand, right? Um, so we can you know think up you know new building codes or new building structures, but it's really hard to play out fully what that looks like until we're you know two weeks out or two weeks after Harvey or two weeks after Irma, um, and, you know trying to figure that out and. There's also, you know, in disaster recovery, there are a few kind of safe spaces to do it. There's always, you know, people's homes on the line and people's, um, their livelihoods, critical infrastructure. Um, so, you know, our healthcare systems, you know, rebuilding those, you know, it's hard to do it, you know, in kind of in a safe manner where, you know, we can't be like, oh, well, we'll just try better next time. Um, you know, it, there's, there's always an imperative to kind of get it right on, on the first time. Um, and so we have a lot of great folks in government and the private sector, you know, trying to think through some of these things. Um, but it's 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 difficult. Um, I can also kind of speak to from a response lens, not as much as the kind of more the long term recovery and relief efforts we have in the response field. We have, um, you know, after action reports. So we look at, you know, after Hurricane Sandy, after Hurricane Maria, um, we do a, an after action report like, you know, this went well, this went poorly, communication was strong here, it was weak there. It's, it's a lot harder to do an after action report for a recovery or relief process because it's so much longer. And, you know, it's clear kind of when recovery starts, but it's, it's a lot harder to get that input and develop something useful like an after action report afterwards to inform some of your next steps. <laughs> And I'll add too, you know, the, the Kobe example I think is a really interesting one because it's where essentially the government said, we're going to own the big picture. And it's very controversial. I mean, should you wait six months to rebuild a community? Should you put people's lives on hold that long? I, I think one of the challenges, we don't have great models. That's a really interesting one. I think it suggests that there is some merit in taking a breath after a disaster to really think about the rebuilding and really it really engage the community to do that. Maybe six months is too long, but it opens the door to different kinds of thinking. Right now, the conventional wisdom is get as much, throw as much money at the problem as you can, and it'll sort itself out. Um, and you know, a bunch of people run downstream of that and catch the money and, and then pursue uh, you know, their objectives, whether well-intentioned or not, usually well-intentioned, even when the consequences are bad. Um, but I think really sort of building models around this, looking at different recovery. But again, you need a government structure that is able to competently manage that in the aftermath of a disaster, of which there are very, very few that are able to do that. And I think some of the humanitarian practices that were discussed in the film as well, too, that you know, if a, if a country is sort of built on a, on a quasi-colonial client state of a larger nation, they're simply not going to have that capacity. And that these aid dollars end up becoming so, uh, creating a dependence uh, on aid uh, in order to, to sort of prop up these governments and in order to stay in power. And so it creates this incentive structure to perpetuate this for the leadership of the nation so they don't really have the capacity, even if they did have the will, to uh, institute a, um, that level of oversight over the recovery. Can I just say tied to that is the lack of accountability. I think in general, especially in the aid, but particularly disaster aid, there is a distinct lack of accountability. I think back of my country, Sierra Leone, in that sub-region, um, 
you know, Red Cross recently announced that about $9 million, I think, were unaccounted for. And this is money that was given to Red Cross. This is not the bigger picture. I mean, the government of Sierra Leone own um, Auditor General said that at least $14 million of money that was given to government was unaccounted for. Now, um, who owes uh, Red Cross to accounts? Nobody. I mean, the people that are that suffered because of this. I mean, most of these people are the people are dead, but those of us that survived um, don't have the capacity and the agency because at the end of the day, the relationship is not one of equality. It's not one of where we have a relationship or partnership. It's one of where we have no agency and no power and they're just dumping things at us. It's like in the middle of the Ebola, um, Jonathan and you and I worked together and I was trying to mobilize support here to go back to Sierra Leone and, and, and uh, uh, figuring stuff out. And some of the things that were shocking for me was what was passing for aid or what people were bringing to Sierra Leone, right? I mean, a place where we have no electricity and things like that. There was one big philanthropist um, that was uh, interested in dumping thousands of, uh, of tablets in Sierra Leone. I mean, I think you, we, we had conversations about that and we were trying to criticize and say, this is exactly what we don't need right now. Um, but again, because there's no accountability, there's no consultation, there's no interaction, at the end of the day, the people are just supposed to accept whatever uh, comes their way. So I think part of the challenge is in terms of even the, why there's no incentive for thinking about this and, and rationalizing is nobody is held to account from the United Nations all, all through. I mean, if, if, if there was an iota of accountability, we will be holding the UN responsible, not for Haiti, not just for Haiti, of course, you mentioned that in the film, but you look at Sierra Leone, Liberia, they have thousands of dollars were spent, hundreds, millions of dollars were spent to rebuild those countries, to create system at the site of the first shock. People, th I mean, you all know Ebola is not that, it's a it's a big deal, but it's not that big a deal if you have a basic health health infrastructure, right? Nigeria, it got to Lagos, didn't kill a single Nigerian in Lagos because they had a system that they went through. We basically had zero infrastructure after millions of dollars were spent to rebuild those countries, and nobody's held to account, and nobody's asking questions. But we're just waiting for the next thing to come as well. So it's that, I think that that's one of the big problems. And you can look at um, the UN bringing cholera to Haiti. I mean, talk about accountability, or I, I should say lack of accountability. And I'll just add uh, quickly, there were a, one of the, the things that our center does is we've worked with some large sort of private donors to the Hurricane Harvey recovery, to the uh, Puerto Rico recovery from Hurricane Maria. And um, one of the things that we found in Texas is, you know, we went down there really immediately after the storm, identified groups on the ground, sort of looked at what was going on, and put together a very simple MO, uh, memorandum of understanding for those recipients to say, you know, just some basic accountability questions. Give us, let us know how many people are being impacted, um, you know, what kinds of services you're providing. And it was a mix. Some of them had very quick services they could provide, uh, providing uh, durable medical equipment, people who lost their wheelchair, get that to them very quickly, and some of them with a longer tail that are still doing work down there, and, and we've held a little bit of a reserve to give them. With the local partners that we sort of worked with on the ground, no pushback at all. And they said, you know, that's no problem, we'll let you know how many we work. Some of them are saying we can't necessarily give you exact numbers because it's a family, and I'm like, that's all right, just, you know, 
give us a sense of what it's going. So there, there is, you know, not these are not like an international aid, the sphere metrics of disaster recovery or anything all that complicated. We started working with, um, and I, I won't name names, uh, some very large international organizations, same standards. You'd have thought we were asking for their social security numbers and their mother's maiden name. We can't do that. And it was, it was absurd. It was like, you build houses. What do you mean you can't tell us how much money? And, and you know, we can't tell you where we spent it or how many people we spent it on. And it's, it, it was just boggles my mind, the resistance to just the absolute most basic sort of accountability to it. Um, and finally, it came down to, I mean, if you can't, then that's fine. We'll find somebody else who we could give. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We'll, we'll figure something out. Um, and so I think that that is also, um, you know, the, the, they're so used to unrestricted donations. Um, and I think that that's where even the slightest bit of accountability, I think these are very valid questions to ask. How many people are you helping? Let's get a regular report on this. And it's not that administratively burdensome. So, uh, and the ones who I would have expected to have the most infrastructure for doing that were the most resistant to doing that. Um, and I'm sure that there are a variety of reasons that they've convinced themselves are legitimate as it's costly and it has the best impact if we spread it and commingle with other. But it's all, I mean, in reality, it's really just sort of a fairy tale that we tell ourselves to justify um, sort of the way that we like doing business when in, um, and again, with the best of intentions. Um, but some of the, the largest famines and largely were justified with the best of intentions. So I think we have to be careful that good intentions themselves are not enough to have the positive outcome that's desired. Right. Let's uh, open it up for Q&A. Um, if you want to just head up to the microphone, ask a clear, concise question. So it, on the notion of accountability, so I'm assuming that a lot of people, when they see this, Thor, to your point, they're going to be like, well, Maybe I just don't give any money ever because this scares me, right? So what, like, as people who give money, whether it's to, like, the Red Cross or as taxpayers, right, who vote in politicians who then do things with our money, what do we as customers who want to see, you know, positive change in the world, like, what can we do to, you know, follow our dollars in, in the sense of, of finding out whether or not we're giving to the right organizations or... To your point, they're accountable in a way that we can get some kind of transparency around, you know, what we think they should be doing. Give it to me. Yeah. <laughs> and me. No. Um, I would say I think part of it is so there are organizations um, that kind of track and rate nonprofits. So um, like um, Charity Navigator, GuideStar, a few others will give charities and nonprofits ratings on how you know how effectively they're using money. Um, but I I. I think also an important point to remember is a lot of these nonprofits, um, there's so much pressure to see that the money given to them is going to direct services like for patients or for people, survivors directly impacted, you know, that's why we see, you know, your $1 a day will feed, you know, a child for three years, those kinds of statistics. Because people want to see, like you were saying, where your money's going. Um, so I think, you know, in part of the broader conversation for bigger donors, it's important to highlight that, you know, nonprofits need operating funds too to do, to have the infrastructure to do some of that accountability um, and track those measures and have performance measures. Um, and then, but then, you know, we kind of start to see the circle come around again. And then people say, well, why do you need so much money 
to do operating costs and overhead? Why isn't more going towards the direct services? So I think having you know really honest conversations and um, you know charities and nonprofits being very transparent about where their money is going. Um, and nonprofits do actually have to post their financial statements. They're publicly available um, on the IRS website, so you can do kind of your own due diligence and see what how um, nonprofits are spending um, a lot of their money. Sorry, I was going to say your question was uh, in jest, but my your answer to that question was in jest. But I will say, give me the money, actually, and it's not in jest. Because I do run a, a I, I just started a nonprofit last year uh, called Purposeful Productions. And uh, we invest in local organizations um, in in the global south who are interested in changing the game for girls, where we have a very distinct power theory and all that. But that's that's actually not the, the answer. I, I think, I did, so last year when the mudslide happened, Jonathan and I had a long conversation about what to put out, a call to put out, and we ended up, for some reason, I ended up deciding I did not want to be part of putting out a call. Because um, I'd been part of putting out a call for the war, I'd been the face of trying to get people to give money to the uh, to Ebola, I went out there to everything, and at some point I just thought, you know, I don't want to tell people to give money to this because I think it's, one, I feel like a lot of the times, and this is part of the problem, people just want to give quickly and forget about it. And I wasn't sure that people really wanted to engage in the way that I, I thought would make a difference. And secondly, I think that that also sometimes contributes to the problem, this power dynamic that I was talking about, inequality in the sense that, oh, I've done something because I've just given money. But that also doesn't mean that I don't want people to give money. So for an enlightened audience like this, I would say go beyond giving money and basically ask the, ask the hard questions and think about, I, my suggestion would be also boycotting the big, the behemoth uh, NGOs, the easy ones. Um, I would say think about local groups on the ground that you've just talked about. And sometimes it's actually not that hard to get in touch with these local groups and their monies and their dollars will go a really long way. I'm not, a, I'm, because I run a nonprofit, I'm not a very big fan of, of the ratings um, of, of nonprofits, I will tell you, because as you mentioned, a lot of them will judge you based on how much money you spend on operations and things like that. I think that people doing this work needs to be paid as well. And, uh, and so I, I, I take with a pinch of salt the ones that hold that against you if you spend money on, on. But I think at the end of at the heart of it, my my suggestion will be, um, in this country, you actually, your vote and your voice matters. A lot of us can't say that in places we come from, and what you do and how you interact with your lawmakers can make a big difference for us in these places and the work that we do, and getting involved and beyond just the. I've just given $5 and that's it. I feel good about myself. But actually thinking about engaging in, in, in that support, I think can make a big difference. That's what I'll say. Yeah, and the donation process um, is based on convenience and emotion. Um, and so if you find yourself giving into it because it's convenient, because that donate button keeps popping up every web page you go onto on the site, or that text number always comes up, um, and when you're looking at the reports, and if it's a lot of pictures and stories and not a lot of data, I think it's important to look closer at that. And again, I, I think to all the points here is it's not necessarily a bad thing to give unrestricted money 
to an organization so they can pay their operating costs. That gives them the flexibility to respond. Um, I don't have a problem if you give money to the Red Cross or one of these organizations. Just don't do it because it's easy and because they had a picture that pulled at your heartstrings. You know, look closer at that. Um, I'd rather you give less money, more informed, than give more money sort of scatter approach because all it does is sort of reinforce that. The other piece on the taxpayer side, and you mentioned as well too, so there was a great article, I think it was called uh, Myopic Voter Behavior and Natural Hazards Policy or something like that. And it was a group of political scientists did some research into most elected officials, if they, if they invest in preparedness policy as part of their agenda, they will see the benefit within their election cycle but the relationship between voter behavior and preparedness funding is zero. There's no correlation. Now, voter behavior and relief funding, if a disaster strikes, is so strong that according to this analysis, every $27,000 in relief spending buys you one additional vote. We heavily reward disaster relief funding. And so I think the other piece, too, is that we should be angry at how much we're spending in disaster relief. We should spend it because we need to recover and we need to rebuild, but we should be angry about how much we're spending and how many lives have been disrupted because these dollars really represent people who have been left behind, people who are rebuilding while others are moving on with their lives. And it's because, as elected officials, our elected officials did not invest in preparedness, which we know saves anywhere from uh, $6 for every $1 spent in the latest FEMA number. This report had it as high as 15 to one. Pick whatever number you want. It saves a lot of money. And, and by saving money, that's just a proxy for human impact and human suffering um, that is uh, really immeasurable. And just to add to these great um, remarks, um, just to take it one step beyond um, you know, your normal everyday citizen and giving money and voting is like, there are journalists here. There are young journalists. There are budding journalists here. Uh, Follow the money, you know, like SIGAR, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. It's so much data, um, and it's there. And there are lots of inspector generals out there that are looking into all of these areas. Not all of these areas, but these departments and, like, where is money being spent. Um, that is available to every citizen, but as a journalist, like, you can do something with it. And I think a really great example is looking at ProPublica, and they are just, they are relentless in covering the Red Cross. So if you haven't read uh, any of that reporting, it's pretty, um, it's pretty thorough. And Politico just released uh, an investigative report today looking at the comparison between Hurricane Harvey in Texas and Puerto Rico, both following the money as well as the political rhetoric going on from the White House at the time. And I think, again, very, it's just a good example of some investigative journalism that's following the money and lining it up with the uh, political rhetoric. Right. And just to follow up, you know, I think one of the key pieces of advice I could give is if you want to donate, wait. Wait. There's going to be a lot of corporations, a lot of big donors that are going to give lots of money to the relief um, organizations. But knowing and doing a little bit more research into who's sticking around, who's staying in the community, and who's staying there to continue to deliver services into that recovery phase and well into that is going to be, I think, far more in fact impactful than just the, the immediate gratification of, of making a donation um, of, of essentially a, an unconscious donation of 
just because a button is there or a, a text to or a you know American Airlines has got tons of ads. Um, and also looking out for local organizations that are are serving as um, uh, distribution points for funding. Uh, one key example is the Baton Rouge Area Foundation. Um, after Katrina, they essentially served as a clearinghouse. People just gave them money and trusted them to know that they would distribute that money to smaller organizations that were really already established and doing good work. So I would say those two, two pieces of advice. Hi, I wanted to go back to the making of the film. And uh, yes, it's a question for you. And uh, I wanted to know that beside that part in which obviously the Ministry of Mining in Afghanistan didn't didn't really respond to any of the questions. If you found any other resistance, obviously it's a very important topic and not many people are willing to go on the record. So I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about access and how you went around certain problematic. Um, thank you for that question. Um, the So specifically about Afghanistan and that trip to the Ministry of Mines, uh, um, I was a little taken back because it was my second trip to Afghanistan. Uh, the first time that I went, uh, it was under the Karzai uh, administration or regime or presidency. I spent uh, a few weeks there, I think two weeks, and I managed to get an interview with the head of the Afghan Geological Society. I managed to get an uh, interview with the Minister of Finance. I managed to get an interview with the Deputy uh, Minister of Finance, and I got an interview with the Minister of Mines, uh, as well as his deputy that was um, implemented policy. This is under Karzai, you know, um, somebody who's known very well for having a lot of corrupt people in his government. Now, on the flip side, which was like amazing and um, I didn't really know what my story was then. It was not this story. Um, also, all of those people aren't in office anymore. So it's really hard to use people who um, can't really speak for what's going on. So when I went back, uh, Ashraf Ghani was president. Um, Ashraf Ghani, if most of you probably don't know, um, one of his, um, he's from the IMF, the World Bank. He, he came up through those organizations. He actually had his own uh, nonprofit was called Institute for State Effectiveness, which was going into failed states and helping them rebuild their government from the inside. And minerals is a big thing for him, uh, and he's Afghan. So I'm like, wow, like I'm going to get some really great access in Afghanistan because they have to totally be on board. And I was completely shut out. Um, all of his handlers led me on. Uh, like we did for months, we were working on getting access. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm talking to somebody in the office on the phone in Afghanistan, and I said, I want to talk to the Minister of Mines. Like, how can we make this happen? And he goes, how about the president? You want to talk to the president? I can get you an interview with the president. I'm like, yeah, great. And the Minister of Mines? Can I get both? <laughs> no problem. Um, and so it didn't happen. Uh, which is why we did something I think is a little uncharacteristic of my personality. Uh, it was at the end of the trip, and so we just went. Javid happened to work in the same building. Um, he's like, just come see me. Like, That's your access to the building. So um, we tried for a long time to get an interview with somebody, anybody, as Anthony was saying, and uh, that just happened organically. Javid's like, well, there's one last thing. You can just go talk to you know this guy that I know is here so um, 
uh, Spencer, who you probably saw a couple of times, uh, I just said, Spencer, don't turn off your camera. Uh, and I got my phone out and I put voice record on and I gave it to Anthony and I said, Anthony, just hold this so we can get whatever sound is in the room. And that's what made that scene. So to go into filmmaking, that was disappointing, but I think it works uh, as a storytelling device. Uh, however, in Haiti, we actually, we had pretty good access in Haiti. No one made it into the cut. We really wanted, um, we really wanted the prime minister, uh, Lamothe, who you saw, um, and the president Martelli. We really wanted Martelli. Um, we made some really good inroads with getting those two guys, but it's, they don't want to be on camera. Let's just put it that way, unless it's something they can control. Um, but we, we had some really good interviews with government officials there. It's just, it was, it's such a, Haiti, if you're a journalist and you want to go to Haiti or any disaster zone, some, it's, it's can be really difficult um, because it's such a big story. Um, and they sort of got lost because the story was about housing. Like that is the story. There's so much money being spent and there were no houses being built. Um, unless they were attached to uh, an industrial park. So we didn't need a government official to talk about that. Um, Papua New Guinea, there's like, that's a little remote island. It should be part of the Solomon Islands. It should not be part of Papua New Guinea. It's called Bougainville. There's no government there. So um, the people we talked to are sort of the, the players. I mean, um, Sam, is uh, he was a leader of the Bougainville Revolutionary Army, which actually killed Theo's father. I don't know if you guys made that connection, um, but that civil war, like he went away for a while and he came back, so they pretty much thought he was a spy, which is why they killed him. Yeah, civil war is ugly, and you know, I've never gone through it, thank God. Um, um, so it's a really complicated, messy thing, but Sam, Sam is a pretty big deal. Um, there's a very good chance that they become an independent country that he may be their president. He's definitely going to run. And Theolina, look out for her. She's yeah. probably 25 when we shot her. She's she's now got a, a baby, and she's still there doing her thing. So um, that was a long answer to your access question. Thanks. So both in the documentary and in the panel, you've talked about the fact that donors can change practices. But I believe they were part of the problem initially because they have been the one pushing for this business model. So what would be the incentives for donors to change the way they influence uh, the aid industry, especially given that they um, behave based on their own political or economic interests or their security concerns or at best their ideology, which is the good intention part? So do you see any hope there, especially for the biggest ones, that they would change the behaviors and reverse that situation? I, I have a lot of faith that the private sector is actually going to lead to smarter donations. And I say this because I think the pharmaceutical industry in Puerto Rico is a great example. Um, and, and organizations like Healthcare Ready exist sort of to serve as that node where you have government and private sector that sort of have walls built up so they can't collude with each other and engage with each other and so nonprofits to help facilitate that discussion and sharing. But then in Puerto Rico where you had the factories themselves that were minimally damaged. 
um, but people couldn't get to them because their communities were so disrupted. Um, full disclosure, our center actually has a grant that I'm principal investigator on from a pharmaceutical company focused on building community resilience before disaster strike. We're seeing, uh, just yesterday, we were on the phone with a, with a bank looking at um, disasters in terms of the kinds of loans that it makes to municipalities. Are they taking into consideration things like disasters? So I think the smarter and more three-dimensional we get at looking at the problem, uh, the better um, the better approach we're going to have to doing this. Again, I think one of the challenges is that donations, especially large-scale donations, are based on convenience and based on emotion. And as long as they're based on such sort of superficial standards, um, it, it's just going to go into whoever has the structures to gobble it up the quickest. Um, but by ourselves as individuals being uh, scrutinizing where we're giving the money more, by organizations who are organizing employee giving, asking tougher questions of these things, um, the, the aid industry is going to respond to that because they're not going to have a choice not to. I don't share Jeff's optimism about the private sector, for sure, um, certainly. Um, I, I think actually the last point he made about, the last point you made, Jeff, about people organizing and, and being more involved and demanding more and the grassroots level, I think that's what's going to bring about the change. And also, even in, even in the in the countries where the aid is coming from, in this case, if you're talking about transatlantic aid or north-south aid, I think there's much greater awareness now, and people are going to be much more involved in how their resources have been spent. They're going to demand a more greater account accountability, and that's going to translate in even the way the private sector investments work. The one thing that we have not talked about here on this panel yet is the role of China um, and what's happening, for example, you know, in, in all of Africa right now. Um, so while, you know, while there's this transition happening, of course, the United States is kind of withdrawing from some of the world. China is, is coming in pretty aggressively and they don't, and they're not bringing policy. They're not bringing values. They're bringing things. Um, they're building roads and things and taking over industries and, and signing 100-year uh, concessions and things like that. So I think there's an inevitable backlash that's going to come out of that as well. We're beginning to see now in some elections in Africa, it's between the governments in, fa the governments in favor of China versus the governments not in favor of China. I think what's going what's gonna to keep happening is that the more enlightened the world becomes, the much more mobilized local communities become. My group, for example, in Sierra Leone, what we're, what we're investing in is building local movements. It's connecting people so that they can understand that this is not a favor. This is what is, and, and to begin to say, you know what, no thank you. Organizing are against mining companies coming in and, and people being willing to be thrown in jail and, and resisting, I think we saw some of that as well. I think that's what's going to lead to, that's, I think the change, I don't see yet an evidence of big business or big players changing if that change is not demanded from the bottom. Uh, actually, I have a related question. Um, it seems to me that uh, with regard to the uh, accountability issue and the, the donor problem and, and their involvement, um, you know, if you think about the uh, public or a nonprofit 
publicly traded company. Um, their ultimate responsibility is the shareholder. And it seems to me, and, and based on what, what I've heard today, that there is no, there's no real, there's no one that, that holds you accountable as, as an organization. And uh, it also seems that in, in, a, in a nonprofit aid situation, the shareholder should be uh, the relationship between the donor and the people who, are need, who need help, right? And uh, so I wonder if, if there are any organizational models uh, in the nonprofit, nonprofit sector that do sort of connect the donor, you know, whether through technology solutions or any other means, uh, where, the, where the donor can interact and become part of the process earlier on rather than waiting to see what these organizations that are on this path-dependent uh, way of, of approach I'm not sure if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 In, in terms of uh, governance structure, I'll, I'll hit on the first part, is that um, you know nonprofits theoretically are supposed to have a board of trustees. And the role of the board of trustees, again, in theory, is supposed to be to represent community interests. And so the 501c3 tax stat status that they have, the board of trustees is supposed to make sure that this not-for-profit is supporting the community-driven mission and sort of giving back. And that's kind of a domestic model, but you can extrapolate that internationally. That's not how nonprofit boards are built. Nonprofit boards are built for people to bring in donations to fuel into the, the organization. And so I think that that's one of the things to really look at is what is the makeup of the board? What is the makeup of the executive officers? And if you have too many... Um, Sort of, it, it, and you can get a very quick picture on if this is driven towards fundraising versus accountability. There are some models where they'll bring in advisory boards with folks from in country and things like that. But the other piece that I would say is that if you don't see diversity on the board and the executive officers of the nonprofit, it means that it's not in the DNA of the organization to be diverse and to bring in different perspectives that it's an echo chamber of ideas. Um, and so, again, it's optimized around fundraising rather than the interests of the community. Yeah, um, I'll just echo Jeff's point, um, absolutely. Um, board directors, board of trustees play a very important role. Um, but I think also um, there's ways for for donors to you know connect with, whether it's a public-private partnership or another organization on the ground to kind of help fund and direct where their money is going. Um, I think we, we touched on some of these earlier, but um, you know, having some, some kind of intermediary that can you know, sit, sit back and say, okay, well, hold on, we'll see, you know, there's a need emerging so we can connect, you know, we can route your money there because you've highlighted you want your money to go to XYZ cause. Um, I can give an example from our work in the hurricane season. So we connect between the public and the private sector. And so we were working with chain pharmacies Chain pharmacies said that you know we have these mobile um, mobile pharmacies that we can deploy to areas of greatest need, but we want to make sure that they're going to the areas of greatest need. We think we have some ideas in mind, but we want to make sure that you know they are, from your perspective or from the relief nonprofit perspective, also the areas of greatest need. So seeing more collaboration and coordination, not you know not just one relief agency or um, you know company acting on their own, but really collaborating and trying to coordinate and communicate as much as possible is important during these times as well. Can I just say quickly that the, at the heart of your, of your question is the power imbalance. There's a power dynamic here. So even if there's an intent 
in the, on the part of the donor. And a lot of donors are good intentioned, right? I, I think your points, which I, I really like, we say this a lot when we talk about girls' programs, good intention is not enough. I think it's a really good point to think about here. So you have, but think about the biggest, the biggest foundations, right? They've got billions to shell out and they've got five, 10, 20, 30 program managers. They don't, if they had the interest, they don't have the time. If they have the time, they don't have the interest or the capacity. So there's a, there's a, there's a lot um, of issues here. And even when they do, and, and there are a lot of progressive foundations now, big foundations who are constantly thinking about how they can make themselves more accountable, how they can create a relationship. And, and, and you know, we're lucky to work, to work with one of them who, and that's why they fund us because we exist in the community and we're working with local partners. So we're creating these relationships that they, and they come in. But I think at the end of the day, the real, the real um, challenge with, with the point you make, which is a great one, is how do you navigate that power relationship and, and, and create not just tokenistic interest, because that's very easy to create, to say, you know, we're going to make sure you come and see this program, but create a, a relationship of real accountability, mutual accountability. And I don't really see a model yet, to be honest, if I'm going to be honest with you, of how that works really well. I'd say w one last thing that, please, please stand up. Um, you know, one of the, the largest donors is the United States government. Um, and they, they're, it's just built into their system that basically if you are working as a foreign diplomat or if you're working for USAID, um, you know, you don't spend longer than two years in, a, in one location. Then you're rotated out. So there's, it's just an inherent problem in our Same US government. Same thing in the UN, by the way. In, in the, the UN. Yeah, so it's, it's built in, like they do not, the, pro the system is built in a way to where if I am a well-intentioned person and I go to Haiti, I go to Panama, I go to Bolivia, it doesn't matter. Once I get to know the country, what's going on on the ground, who the players are, what's really needed and how it really needs to be applied, I'm gone. You know, I'm now in Colombia or I'm now in you know, Sri Lanka and I start the whole process again. So I don't know how that's fixed. I don't know how that's fixed from the private industry. I don't know how it's picked from nonprofits, but like, that's a pretty big flaw uh, that I think is um, to get to your heart of your question uh, is an implement for that or impediment for that. Good evening. My name is Jael. I'm from the Social Work School at Columbia. Thank you for sharing time and space with us tonight. I'm um, just really quickly. Um, I think one of the I guess reoccurring threads here was. Um, and this was stating, stated in the film, is that the promise is in local people. So there's this reoccurring theme that um, those most impacted should be involved in decision making and they should be having a major role in developing the narrative that's told about them, right? Um, so as a social worker or a clinician um, and trying to approach the work through like a social justice-based lens or a community organizing-based lens and as someone who might work with people who have been impacted by natural disasters. Um, I guess my question is what is, what are some creative ways to engage people in those immediate moments following the disaster, right? So we're talking about people who might be displaced, they might be separated from family. So um, how can we in those immediate moments encourage them and engage them in their advocacy and realizing their agency and how can we concretely think of creative ways to get them involved in that level of decision making? 
Well, the good news is that with technology, it's really democratizing the communication around these things. I mean, we saw it in the recent hurricanes as well, too, where there were blind spots in the 911 system, so people took to social media. So there, we saw, even here in New York after Sandy, the Occupy Sandy movement, sort of built on the principles of the Occupy Wall Street. So I think there are a lot of organizing principles for communities that can be harnessed through community advocacy. But even pre-event, one of the most innovative models that I've seen which is based on some of the research of Daniel Aldrich, who does a lot of work on social capital and is being implemented in San Francisco, is actually to try to build community cohesion pre-event. Train people in community activism pre-event. It's led by a, a friend of mine, Daniel Holmes, who actually comes from a political activism background. Um, and they, they have this program where they'll, um, the, the city will actually sponsor a block party if it has a civic component to it. And the idea being that you get to meet a cop at a barbecue, not a traffic stop. <laughs> you know, you get to meet your neighbors. Um, some of Daniel Aldrich's work really brings it down to he can predict your level of social cohesion based on whether you have a garage or not, <laughs> and things like that on how, how close we come together as communities. But I, I think to, to a lot of the points that, that Turner's been making as well as to your question is that, you know, if we want to truly build community resilience, we have to invest in communities. This is where I think it's very difficult to rely on large-scale national actors, because what happens is that we have these large theoretical frameworks, these definitions of resilience, and then we start to come down to the local level where there's all these people <laughs> and all these jurisdictions that we need to activate, and it gets really, really hard. So what do we do? Well, there's this updraft where we go back up and say, well, let's maybe redefine it. Maybe if we define it differently, if we define preparedness differently, it was breaking down silos, and then it was whole community, and now it's resilience. I don't know what tomorrow's buzzword is, but it's all the same damn thing that needs to be done is getting into communities and getting funding into communities to do that. And I think, to Turner's point, the more that we can activate communities to do this, and on the private sector to bring it to scale, the more that communities see that an investment in the communities where they work is an investment in their own resilience, um, the more options we have. I think government aid programs are always going to be driven by national security agendas. And so I don't mind that. I think we need to train people how to exploit that when the interests align and turn it away when they don't. Um, but I think that that's something that's just not going to change. Taxpayer dollars are always going to be America first. We just have an administration that's calling it that right now. Yeah, again, um, kind of echoing a lot of Jeff's points, um, resilience is a very trendy word right now in our space. We use it a lot. It can mean kind of whatever we need it to, um, depending on the situation. But um, kind of related more to your kind of social justice lens and engaging communities and, and individuals and efforts, um, you know, it goes out saying social media represents or, you know, huge potential um, and demonstrated potential to do that as well. Um, but I think another thing we're seeing is that, you know, these large nonprofits and even smaller nonprofits can kind of, I'm thinking it was actually Frances McDormand, I think, in her Oscar speech, you know, called for inclusion riders. I think calling for nonprofits and, and donors to do something like that at a community level. So making sure that donors and, you know, are including, you know, community-based organizations in a concrete way is important. Um, and I think also, you know, not they're not always victims and they're not always just survivors, but, you know, encouraging people impacted by disasters, whether they've had to evacuate or they're separated from a loved one, you know, what they can do to contribute to the response, too, because they still have value to add to that. And 
Um, we had a roundtable event uh, uh, last year about, you know, the different preparedness and response considerations for elderly communities, and you know, how do we plan for you know elderly communities and nursing homes that don't use technology in the same way that we would want them to? And a participant in that roundtable said, you know, you're viewing them as someone to always be taken care of, which is partly true, but also. A lot of these, you know, elderly populations, as you call them, have decades of experience, of life experience that they want to bring to these response efforts. So, you know, trying to balance their needs, but also the potential um, and resources they can bring to efforts, also. So we've heard a lot about. I'm very short. Sorry. <laughs> about nonprofit donations, donors, boards. Um, and it just seems that you know it's really ultimately about yeah the donors and we forget about the beneficiary the beneficiary or so um, and I think that one one kind of rising field that I haven't heard about during this panel is social enterprises and um, the role of social enterprises in the humanitarian space. Um, so I'm really curious to hear um, from from the panelists um, their thoughts on the potential for such organizations especially in light of technology and what that can bring. Because it really, ultimately, a, a social enterprise aims to be self-sustainable and not reliant on uh, donations. And even further, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on for-profit social enterprises and their role within this space. I'm for it. Um, I, I think, no, and I think it's a great point. And actually, I was just thinking in the back of my head, too, we haven't talked about impact investing and things like that. And I think that's something that really, with sort of this new generation of leaders that's emerging, is they're demanding, if I'm going to invest in a retirement savings account, I want to know what's in that portfolio. And I want the same investment, but I don't want it to be contain fossil fuels, or I don't want it to contain defense industry, things like that. I think that's fantastic. If people say, I want to know where my money's going, and what it's what's it, it it's is included in the portfolio, and I want to make a return on that investment, I think it starts to nudge towards a more responsible for-profit enterprise. I also think there's some interesting, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but there's ways of, you know, uh, encouraging small businesses. Now they take a big chunk off the top, but through Amazon selling and things like that, where people can make a product and sort of function as a quasi-small business, um, I, I think also has a lot of potential. But at the end of the day, if we want to break the cycle of requiring donor after donor after donor, one, as we've been saying, you need the local communities to be a part of determining how that money is spent to best invest without competing with the local economy. But even better, if we're creating enterprises in those economies, if we're fostering small businesses, microloans have been one of the biggest things to come through. And through social impact investing, sort of looking at how we invest our money every day and nudging that towards a more responsible way. I think that these are potentially game changers if they continue with sort of the momentum and attention that we've seen over the last few years. I would agree 100% on that. I think that, um, you know, we, we've, as I've said, my work focuses particularly on empowering adolescent girls. And I think that one of the big things research after research has shown is that at the end of the day, it's about money. You know, as I think in the United States, there was a campaign that said it's the economy stupid. I think at the end of the day, too, in terms of poverty programs, yeah, it was a Clinton campaign, James Carville, I think. But yeah, I think it, figuring out, as Jeff was saying, how to get these local um, groups that we've talked about all day to basically think about how they can innovatively make money in their local communities 
and the, the hope with that is that one the profit motive is is um is more ethical because it goes back into the community and not being uh, hounded out um away from the community but it's also just it builds on social capital as well it encourages that builds on self-worth and things like that my only um caveat will be that i feel like quickly and it's common in this sector it's becoming the big shiny object everybody just that's what everybody wants to do and everything and there's not one there's not sufficient evidence yet in terms of the the at least the scale and the extent of its efficacy especially in the context that we're talking about and two i think there's space for that but there's also space for social work and there's also space space for just good whole uh, humanitarian work and, and social justice work as well and figuring out how that works together and that's actually some of the things that Jonathan and, and I, the work we've been trying to do is to figure out how we work with, for example, solar solar companies, green um, technology companies in the nonprofit world with girls who can then use that to make money and, and also build social capital. So I think figuring out that intersection is going to be critical in the next few years. Yeah, there's, we have a couple of good examples of, of different use cases from institutional stoves to solar panels um, that girls have used for charging and actually charge other people in the community to use those charging stations as a way to make money, and we can talk about that afterwards. Um, uh, just last question, uh, Anthony says that true democracy is the greatest threat to outside influence, and uh, Thora Turner, you know, as creatives and communicators um, who are out there trying to create social change, um, how beyond this film can storytelling um, be used for social change as a tool to ensure that the most vulnerable voices are heard uh, with or without the use of technology? Yeah, that's, um, that's deep. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, um, I think, it, you know, for the journalists in the room, um, I think it's really important. Um, so th there's a, it's, it's, it's a very fair question, and it's becoming more and more prevalent. Is like, why are you telling the story? Um, and that, you know, I'm, I've been doing this for a while, so it used to take. I used to take a step back and like, well, because I'm a journalist, like I'm a documentary filmmaker, like that's why. But there's there's a lot of truth to that, and I didn't realize that I sort of did that myself. Um, so I think that if you are as a journalist, as a filmmaker going to go to another place. It doesn't even have to be another country. It could be another community within the city you live. Is, is I think you have to not just say in a token way, like, I want to um, bring you know, the voiceless. I want to give them a platform. But like, you honestly, you have to be honest with yourself and let them do that. Um, I think it's 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 the power of what film can do and what journalism can do is you can not take advantage of uh, someone else's situation for your own good, but to actually let them tell their story um, in a way that they can't because they're not a trained professional um, as as a journalist or a filmmaker that comes to the school is. Um, and I think trying to get out of the way of that story as much as you can. That's what I tried to do in this film and Anthony, I mean, Anthony, there's a heavy presence of him, but he's unpack, he's, what we try and do through Anthony, Anthony's character is unpack this incredibly complicated story um, so that 
we can set up people that live in these countries um, so that we can set them up to where their voice mean like the the truest um, level of what they're saying can come through that we're able to do um, because it's not world history you know it still has to be a story um, so I mean but how do we do that without actually going there and using technology um, I don't know just I guess just be you know, um, interested and, you know, like you said, take your time and don't hit that red button and donate money. Uh, I think if you really are, if you really care, try and get to know a little bit about what's going on, uh, who the people are, what's needed, um, and are there people on the ground already doing work? Um, because those are the people that should really be receiving the aid. I think that's come through tonight in this conversation. But they should also be doing the work as much as they can. You know, in Haiti, a lot of the people that come in and build roads, they're from the Dominican Republic. So those are companies in the DR that are getting the money. The workers are from the DR, they're getting the money. And then a lot of other workers in Haiti, they're from all over the world. You know, a lot of those companies uh, are based here, <coughs> excuse me, based here in the United States. It's called Boomerang Aid. You know, you send the money to Haiti to a U.S. company and it comes right back to the United States. Um, try and figure out what that is before you start giving money. Um, I guess that's a way to help people tell their stories. I don't know. Thank you. I mean, I think that one of the biggest, um, for people without power around the world, the biggest issues normally, and you know, if you go to any country, and I've been to quite a few, you look at the, you look at the country, you can tell who's got the resources or who's, who matters by who is visible and who has a voice. Um, obviously, all of us in this room have incredible privilege. And if you come to Colombia, you obviously have, you know, you're in the top, top of, of privilege. So I think that, you know, for us, the work I do focus mostly on, on poor girls in poor communities. One of the things, one of the most important things we're trying to do is to, we think about it like a civil rights movement. It's really trying to organize block by block, community by community, groups of girls. We call it building the female infrastructure. Girls, their mentors, their moms, help them think of themselves as a unit because that's one thing that they've never been thought to see themselves as a group, as a people, because they're just individuals who should be afraid of each other, by the way. And that's how most girls are are brought up in this context. So one of the, the things my work does and, and we try to invest a lot in is to figure out one, how to give, how to create, help them create common identities amongst themselves and then find their voice and use that voice to not be invisible because that's the most, you know, it's the most kind of powerful thing. It's, it's the most important thing you can do to gain power is to be is to be there is to be visible and i think the work you do in this work has incredible potential and incredible power but at the end of the day the most powerful transformation will be when Asians and afghanis can tell the story and it's be just as compelling and it has just the same prominence around the world with the people with power and things like that until we get to that work, I think it's until we get to that stage, I think it's being aware of that and creating opportunities for 
the folks we saw in the film to feel like when they see this, it's their voice, it's their story as well. And supporting work like mine in the field where ordinary people are organizing and finding that voice in their respective communities. Because I, the, the one thing I'll add to all that is, and I know we've talked a lot about technology, but I come from a country where 90% of the people don't have access to the internet. So I know that obviously it's a, there's a massive change that's happening around the world and people are getting connected and all that, but there's still a good number of people in the world who are not as connected as we think. So thinking about it, not just in terms of, you know, I, I like to say to people in a nonprofit world, if the way you measure the success of your girls program is whether your, your Twitter um, hashtag has trended, then I think we have a problem because now we've, we've just come to the world where it's just about, you see, we trended, so that's success, right? But it's really thinking about real people in real places and what real changes are happening and how you're giving them that voice and that visibility and them feeling more empowered to be able to tell their own story. I think that's the most important transformation that can happen. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Sarah, Jeff, any last words? Sarah? Yeah, no, I mean, it's been an honor to be on this panel um, with um, the diversity here and hearing these perspectives, um, you know, I think really just kind of drive home the complexity of this issue, which of course the documentary does extremely well. Um, and you know, cause it's complex from a natural disaster standpoint, from a war torn country standpoint. Um, and you know, like we've been talking a lot about tonight is, you know, incorporating local perspectives and local voices, but remembering and continue to do this through documentaries and other mechanisms and venues that they're multi-dimensional voices. It's not just, um, you know, the impacts that a family or that a person suffered as a result of this natural disaster, this event, but the cascading impacts from that um, and how they'll continue to be affected, but also, you know, what they can contribute to the response and just knowing, or to the relief rather, um, and just knowing that there's so many interdependencies, um, it's important to tease all of those out also. <laughs> Um, and um, uh, thank you, first of all, to, to all of you, who, especially those of you who have hung in till the bitter end. You guys are hardcore. All right. Yes. Now that the other folks have, have been whittled <laughs> away, let's talk. No, the, um, um, no, thank you guys for being here. And also thank you to, to Thor and Anthony and everyone involved with the film, of course, for, for making the film and really shining a light on this. Uh, this issue and allowing us and, and to all of the panelists for um, allowing us to have this conversation. Uh, and again, just to sort of echo, I think what what everyone said. I think the, you know, nobody ever gets fired for saying no in a large bureaucracy. No one ever gets fired for doing things the way that they've always been done. But I think if there's a takeaway is that if if you're looking at, to bring aid to scale and it doesn't involve the people in the communities, it's probably not going to happen. If you're looking on how to give and and the giving is based on emotion and convenience it's probably not going to do what you want it to do and um you know if if we're sort of falling back on old definitions of this sector is bad this sector is good without digging deeper and without asking tougher questions um then it's then we're probably doing it wrong um to echo what what Turner said i mean if you're in this room tonight regardless of sort of the path to get here there's some degree of, uh, of um, privilege and leadership um, that you have within you in this to advocate for these groups. And so I think because we have the capacity to dig deeper and to help create a platform to raise the voice of those 
um, who don't have that opportunity that it, it's incumbent upon us all to find ways to do that. If we're going to see real change, it's going to be because people of privilege lend their voice and lend their platform um, to those who don't have access to it. Thank you all for coming out. Uh, it was a blast. I'm surprised. I'm pleasantly surprised with how many people stuck around until nine. Um, you know, my we had wonderful people in Afghanistan, in Haiti, and Papua New Guinea that contributed in ways that made this film happen. Um, there are really great journalists there. Um, I know a lot of people like to say, oh, I had a fixer there. It's like, well, I bet your fixer was much more than that. And ours were our um, field producers. Um, they, they knew the story, they worked with us, they were partners. We went back and worked with them, you know, um, we went two times to each country. Um, and they brought so much to the story that I obviously um, couldn't have done alone or Anthony couldn't have done alone. Um, so there are really great journalists all around the world and they need to be recognized. So if you're working on something uh, and you're working with somebody in country, um, make sure you give them their due credit and their due respect. Um, and um, yeah, and it's, you know, my partners in Australia, they were amazing too, Anthony. Uh, brought so much to this. He never wanted to be on camera, um, and he's in you know a third of the film probably. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know if you even noticed, like in Haiti when we first started shooting, uh, it didn't shoot him. I did. I was smart enough to mic him though. Uh, I don't know if anybody noticed that, but our first trip there, I was so like the first guy. Um, um, he actually takes a drink of whiskey, so that's what that was, if you were wondering. Um, that's because we, I didn't shoot Anthony. He wasn't going to be in the film. Anyways, uh, he was, a, he was uh, you know, such a great person to make this film with uh, and to be willing to be a character uh, and be on camera. Um, I thought it was very brave. But uh, thank you all very much for coming out. does it for this very special edition of Disaster Politics Podcast. Thank you to Anthony and Thor for, you know, letting us capture the panel discussion and really share that with all of you. I know both them and us really want to keep this conversation going. I think that that's really in the spirit of the documentary and all the work that everyone's been doing is to keep the conversation going. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Disaster Politic. The Disaster Capitalism Film is also on Twitter. They're at Disaster Cap Film, and of course their website, DisasterCapitalismFilm.com, has all the information. You can find the Twitter handles of all the folks who were on the panel in the description for this podcast. Let's keep the conversation going by email. We're DisasterPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. Reach out to us if you want to talk more about this, if you want to be a guest on the show, and... If you like what you're hearing here, if you like what we're doing, leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. But in the meantime, thanks for stopping by. We've got a few more episodes lined up this year already. Can't wait to share them with you. But in the meantime, stay safe out there.